Phil Hay Show. Football is back and right now Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. We've got wall-to-wall Premier League football with games being played nearly every day and with Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch all the games live, With Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, and please gamble responsibly. Welcome to the show then, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan, joined of course by Phil Hay. Hello. And from The Square Ball, Michael Normanton. Hello. And to celebrate the return of the football for a limited time only, we're offering 40% off a subscription with The Athletic. Head to theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod and sign up for less than £3 a month. At The Athletic, we care about every club, so sign up now to enjoy unrivaled coverage and insights of all sides as the season finally reaches its conclusion. And we are back underway, Phil, and the blooming football is back and we blooming well lost at Cardiff. The blooming football. How would your life be if you didn't have these things to interfere with it and to ruin it? I, I wrote a piece last week and I was saying in it that the Premier League waits, what, like three months to, to return and then 42 minutes in, everybody is crying over VAR or goal line technology and you wait more than 100 days to hear from Bielsa and the first thing he says is, Hernandez isn't fit and he'll be missing at Cardiff. And then a few days later, you get your first game down at Cardiff and Cardiff do what Cardiff so often seem to do to Leeds, which is turn them over and the possibility for a for a 10-point lead over Fulham stays at seven um, and suddenly it's it's all to play for in a big way this weekend. So yeah, it, it was kind of football as we know it, wasn't it? Well, over on the Square Ball podcast, we were quite stoic about this result. And actually, once we got over the initial disappointment of what happened on Sunday... We dived into the stats and in terms of output, all the metrics by which we we measure leads, and we're talking about, you know, big chances and passing completion rates and all that sort of stuff that everybody gets uh, really granular and excited about these days. And we pretty much hit our average across the whole season on Sunday, apart from shots on target, I think it was, something along those lines. But other than that, pretty much as you would expect. I mean, you've spoken to Bielsa today via Zoom, living one of my boyhood dreams out. How was he with the performance at Cardiff then? What's his take on it? He was quite happy after the game on Sunday, not not with the result, but I think with a lot, a lot of what had gone on in the game and he'll have analysed it, he has analysed it the past um, three or four days and seems as happy now and, and as content as he was. I, I don't think he felt there was a huge amount wrong um, with the way they played down in Cardiff. I think you could see the issues quite clearly. The the mistakes that led to the goal, uh, the two goals were impossible to ignore and, you know, were, were there for everybody to see. And he was also honest enough to say that for the amount of possession they had and, and the positions, the territory that, that they had on the pitch, they should have been more dangerous than they were. They they should have created more chances. The, the chances that they did create should have been better. But, I mean, he, he saw... The Harrison shot hit Bamford on the goal line. He saw Smithies pull off that save from from Roberts. I think, as he said, and, and as weirdly seems to be the case with Cardiff this season, everything they hit goalward seems to go in against Leeds, and and it was that type of game on Sunday. And and I don't I don't think you should pretend that Cardiff didn't get the tactics right. I think they played the way they wanted to play, 
they brought Leeds on to them. They they did what I think is the, the sensible strategy um, against Leeds, which is to take your chances defensively, hope that, that you can hold out, hope that you can sit deep and that you won't give away any chances that, that Leeds can't miss. And if, if Leeds don't score, you, you look to pick them off. And that's what Hoylet did in the first half. It's it's what Glatzel did in the second half. Both really, really tidy finishes and out of nothing really, but but entirely out of mistakes made by Leeds. And and I think Bielsa, as he often does, he, he, he tends to weigh up the percentages. When when they analyse games afterwards, he, he looks heavily at the things that went wrong because that's where he sees the, the room for improvement and that's where the, the perfectionist kind of chips a chips away at him but I think deep down he, he saw enough in that game to realise that on a different day and, and played again Leeds might have come out of that with a draw might have come out of that with a win it wasn't one-sided in Cardiff's favour at all and, and you were talking about the stats and the key metrics all the, the indicators as to which team played better and it is very often the case that even in the games Leeds lose that when you run through the stats you, you kind of wonder how they how they have and, and obviously games aren't won via stats but they do indicate quite heavily who's played better and, and who's played worse. And, you know, as much as I think Cardiff will probably say they, they got their tactics right and, and the game went as they hoped that it would, I, I think they'll realise as well that, that there, there were some pretty fine margins on Sunday. In your opinion, do we have anything to worry about? No, not especially. I think, I mean, we asked Bielsa today whether or not he saw, and, and I thought this was quite important actually, whether or not he saw a, a notable difference between the football on Sunday and the football that he was witnessing prior to um, the shutdown back in March. And he tends to be quite open about this stuff, BLC. He, he doesn't beat around the bush and, and he doesn't try to to mask performances that aren't great. But he said really that in terms of the intensity and, and the fitness of the players, he was satisfied. He didn't see a huge difference and he didn't feel that, that Leeds had dropped to any any great level. I think the things that, that stand out for me again, I mean the, the the mistakes were the mistakes were very avoidable. And I think in the case of Calvin Phillips and Liam Cooper this season, their their mistakes have have, have not been plentiful. You know, they've they've been few and far between and Phillips in particular has been so consistent right the way through. And it just was a it was a kind of blot on his thinking process that just a bit of a, a lazy swing at the ball and not a clean contact, which which let Hoylet get away. But it, it is the issue of Leeds having chances that they don't take, which we've been talking about not only for this season, but right since since Bielsa first came through the door. It's been a topic of conversation. It's It's been an issue. And, you know, I, I know this is all ground and I know that nothing's going to change with it because it just is the way... Else it is, but it was hard not to sit back, look at that bench on Sunday, see nine players on it, and wonder really where the inspiration was going to come from if if Leeds needed it. It's not it's not full metal jacket in the sense of experience, proven quality championship players from front to back. There are a lot of twenty threes on there. Both of the players who came on, Gotts and Paveda, were were making their league debuts. And are obviously very raw and are, are being dropped into a champ- their first championship season at, at the very, very height of it. So that, I think, is a worry, but it, it's always been a worry, hasn't it? And in terms of XG, I mean, we just go round the houses with that one. Everybody knows the problem. Everybody knows that it's there. And, and everybody knows that it, it's, it seems like it's going to be there for as long as Bielsa is. Is there something more complicated going on with the XG or is it just that Bamford doesn't take his chances? Well, there is an issue with Bamford in that if if you look closely at the the number of big chances he gets, we use um, Optostats at the Athletic to analyse this, but he's had the most of anybody in the Championship. When people say that Leeds are a creative side that can't score or, or don't score enough, it's absolutely true. That's the case. They've served up 38 big chances for Bamford 
by way of optostats, their, their analysis of them. And, and Bamford takes less than 30% of them. And, and when you move on to other players, and we, we will touch on this later, um, like Mitrovic and Graben and, and Ollie Watkins down at Brentford, they are far more clinical. And, and it does mean that they're taking advantage of, of the better play of, of their teams round about them. And it's not solely on Bamford. I mean, Robert's chance was a very good one. Robert's chance pulled, you know, denied by a great save from Smithies. And XG ultimately comes down to the finishing. If the finishing is good, your goals tend to match your, your XG. But if your, your finishing is poor, your XG tends to be considerably higher than the number of goals that you're, you're actually sticking away. So it doesn't fall purely on Bamford. But if you do dig into the stats and you look at the, the quality of his finishing in comparison to the other top strikers in, in the division, again, we're not treading on new ground here, but it, it is a problem. A theme we touched on on the Square Ball podcast over the last few days was the fact that ultimately... That is the difference between Bamford, who's seven to nine million pounds, depending on uh, you know how this transfer fee plays out across the next uh, next few months, and then Mitrovic, who went for what was it twenty odd million, Phil, something like that, and and that's what you're paying for. Yeah, I mean Mitrovic is by far and away the best striker in the division. Interests me in as much as he's never quite made the crossover into the Premier League, even though you would have thought his finishing and, and his all-round play would have been good enough for somebody at that level, even even at the, the bottom end of the, the division or, or in the bottom half. But in wages as well, I mean, Bamford is one of the highest earners at Leeds, but it's nowhere near what Mitrovic is, is being paid down at Fulham. So Mitrovic is a bit of a freak in that sense. But again, if if you look at Graben, another kind of proven finisher, and, and Watkins, um, who despite what a lot of us think about with his diving and his simulation and everything else is, is a hell of a player and, and great finisher as well, great striker um, with a, a huge amount of potential. They are sticking away more chances than, than Bamford does on a percentage basis. And and again, this is a, it is a legitimate subject of conversation. I think it is legitimate to focus on Bamford's finishing because it does make a difference. And there are times where it does hold leads back, but I still feel with him that you, you have to look at him as, as the whole package. I, I still wonder to what extent Mitrovic in the condition he is and, and in, in that Fulham team, if you transferred him to Bielsa's team, I know this sounds ludicrous, but would Bielsa be happy with the way he drops deep and links up? Would he be happy with the way that he works the channels and and is, is kind of prepared to get involved in, in play outside of the, the box? I, I happen to think that Mitrovic is so good that, that he would be. And I think if Mitrovic ever got down to Bielsa's weight requirements and, and fitness requirements, you'd probably have the most unbelievable championship striker you've ever seen. But again, it, it, as I say, I, I always go back to this. There is more to Bamford than his goals. And, and you, you have to be honest enough in saying that Leeds have been very good this season with him in, in the side. Would they be better off if he could finish more clinically? Yeah, they undoubtedly would. But ultimately, the die is cast. You know, I, I did ask um, Bielsa today about Augustine again, not so much about his specific condition now, but whether or not there was any chance at all of us seeing Augustine in, in these last eight games, because my understanding is that we won't. I, I don't think there's there's much chance of that at all. And Bielsa didn't commit really on that. He just said, look, we, we need to look at what he's doing and, and then we need to evaluate him. But again, it's heavily on Bamford now. It, it is going to be him up front. I think even in Tyler Roberts, you've got somebody who who isn't the kind of out-and-out number nine that you need in that position. You know, talented player though, though he is. And again, go through the, the bench on Sunday. There isn't anybody on there that you could hold up and say he is a number nine. You know, he he is a centre-forward. He could come in for Bamford. That option just isn't there. So it has to be Bamford up front and, and everybody's just got to stick with this. Just on the strikers this year, do you think if it wasn't Bielsa, 
a, a different manager might have come under more pressure to play both Augustin and Nketiah earlier in the season. And are they kind of scared of telling Bielsa that maybe he should give these guys a go? Not even pressure. I think they might have done it off their own steam. I think there would have been a big temptation to play two up front with Bamford and Nketiah. I think there probably would have been a temptation to try and get Augustine more involved more quickly than, than he was. I also think that in either transfer window, there might have been a temptation on the part of different managers to bring in another striker to make sure that there were three options there and that if you did suffer from either Nikettia walking out the building as he did or from Augustine suffering with his hamstring that he that he can't get over properly, you wouldn't literally be down to, to one option. But, you know, I, I say this all the time about, about Bielsa. He, he comes as the package that he is. So you're going to have a small squad because that's what he does. He isn't going to stockpile strikers or central midfielders or centre-backs because... He never does. He's going to play the same tactics all the way through the season because that's the way he thinks and, and that's the way he likes to work. And ultimately, he's 64. He's, he's got a long background in the game. If you want him and if you want to pay the money for him, he's going to do it his his way. But I think you're right. I mean, it helps that the results have been good in the main as well and, and you know, better than good. They've, they've been really impressive. When it's like that, it's hard to argue with much that a head coach is doing. But I think... Had the results not been great and also had it had it not been Bielsa, I, I suspect the, the issue up front might have been a bit more of a, a touchy talking point than it has been. And I suspect that the amount of money spent across the two of them, because they've both been incredibly expensive deals, which but looking at the, the minutes they've played, and Ketty have managed 500 in the league and Kevin Augustans have managed, you know, under an hour so far. The cost per minute on those is looking ridiculous. It always, you know, if, if you think back to December when um, when it was clear that Nketiah was going and, and Bielsa kind of resigned himself to that, and, and then for several weeks afterwards, spoke about Nketiah quite religiously. He was obviously annoyed that, that there was this insinuation that he hadn't held up his side of the bargain with Arsenal, that he that, he, that not only should he have played him more, but he was expected to play him more. He felt that he handled Nketiah fairly. He felt that he was doing what was right for the team rather than for for one individual. And actually, I mean, at, at the end of the season, as, as daft as it sounds, you might look back at the Nketiah deal and say that it, it was worth it for the, the point at Preston and the, the win at home to Brentford and, and everything else. He, he did chip in with goals here and there, not a huge number, but the reality was that it was a it was a fairly good signing when he played. You know, he, he made a difference. He, he made an impact without it ever feeling that the way Bielsa was playing was truly set up for, for somebody with Nketiah's skill set but no they they have been extremely expensive and extremely expensive for for what they've they've been able to contribute Augustine in particular and and even to go back to Nketia I mean he he's amazingly played fewer minutes for Leeds this season than Forshaw who who was injured at the end of September and and hasn't played since and that gives you some idea of of how heavily Bielsa has relied on on Bamford and it was it was unfortunate because at the point where Nketia got injured in November, it was in Bielsa's mind to give him a run of four games, to give him a chance up front in place of Bamford and to see what he can do. And the injury obviously set him back. And, and Bamford, as he tends to do when the, the pressure comes on, got himself into a, a little a little streak of goals. But you can't find anybody with more confidence in Bamford than Bielsa. He, he's 100% behind him and just does not does not dwell on the XG factor in the way that we all do. He, whether or not he sees it as wholly relevant, I don't know, um, because he you know, he, he tends to be quite coy about these things. But ultimately, it's like everything else. It's, it comes back to the, the process and it comes back to the collective plan. Um, and I think he feels that in the collective plan, what Bamford does off the ball as much as on it is very valuable. 
I'll say this, I am prepared to give the Mitrovic to Leeds experiment a go if anybody wants to give that a whirl. But uh, Jean-Kevin Augustin doesn't look good, does it? Because his deal's not being extended beyond the 30th, which is, you know, it's only going to be four days away uh, on the day that this um, this podcast is released and no word on him yet. No, well, that was why I asked Bielsa, you know, is there any realistic possibility that, that he could get involved in, in any of these eight games? And I think the fact that Bielsa didn't really want to go down that path tells you that there, there probably isn't. And then, obviously, you move on to the consideration of the permanent deal for him. And I wait with great interest to see how that's going to figure out because I've been in touch with people over in Germany. And and as far as Leipzig are concerned, this is going to be a permanent transfer if and when Leeds go up. They're, They're in no doubt that Leeds have committed to doing this permanently. I don't know if there would be any loopholes in the contract in terms of dates or or any clauses that would allow Leeds to think again if they decided that it, it wasn't right for them. And if it isn't right for them, and if Bielsa doesn't fancy this one anymore, if, if Leeds think that it's it's going to cost them too much money for uh, given the, the risk involved with Augustine's fitness and the fact that he hasn't really played a great deal and, and hasn't really adapted particularly well um, to Bielsa's football or, or the championship, if, if they feel that the risk is too high then they have to find a way of bypassing this one, of, of sidestepping what they've agreed. They cannot get into a deal worth eighteen, ninety million pounds purely because they're, they're committed. It might be that that's how it has to go. And, and if they don't want Augustine, then they're going to seriously regret that. But I think if they feel that another way has to be found, then then they will do. And, and it's a shame, really, because we, we had a good look at Augustine about a month ago at, at his strengths and his weaknesses, looking back at Leipzig and his time at Monaco and... PSG and, and everything else and there is a lot of talent there there's a lot of talent there and, and there is a lot about him when he plays well that I think would suit this Bielsa team but ultimately the number one priority for Bielsa and for him is that he's got to be up to it physically and, and if he isn't and so far he, he hasn't been then that's a big issue Just going back to matters at hand then and, and Cardiff um, why did he use Robbie Gotts? Just curious to find out why Gotts came off the bench rather than somebody else like Shackleton for example yeah, what he was saying today about that, because that surprised me as well. Shackleton has, Shackleton's a very kind of attack-minded midfielder, somebody who has been pretty good, I feel, over the past two seasons at, at slotting in when he's needed to. But strangely, it seemed less and less um, important to Bielsa this season. And what he was saying was that in, in his view, Bielsa's view, um, Shackleton is at his best when he's got space to work with, when he's got space to attack. That's when he's he's really useful. That's when he does most damage. Um, in Gotts, he sees somebody who is a bit better at using the ball when things are tight, when it's packed and, and congested. Somebody who can who can kind of unlock defences when they really are stacked up in front of you. But it, I mean, it was a big call in the sense that Gotts had never played a league game before for Leeds. I know he had his debut down at Arsenal in, in the FA Cup, but we all used to joke about that long run of 35 unused substitute appearances before he, he got the nod down at Arsenal. So it's not as if Gotts has been somebody that Bielsa has been relying on heavily um, in a competitive sense through the, the past two years. But yeah, that was that was the shout essentially. Pervade on, on the right-hand side was was there to to try and provide a little bit of magic. But in Gotts, he, he just thought he had somebody who would work better given that the game was as tight as it was. And ultimately, we didn't come to any harm in terms of damaging things at the top of the table. So, you know, you told us you predicted your one to watch for the weekend was actually Fulham versus Brentford and Brentford ultimately did us quite a sizable favour there because we lost at Cardiff so we've still got that seven point gap yeah which I think in itself was a bonus once you got to the end of the Cardiff game you came away and and actually Bielsa said today um, it's quite unlikely really but he, he said you know that 
there was an opportunity at Cardiff which we didn't take. You know, he's clearly aware of the fact that that the chance was there to, to stretch the lead a little bit. But as I as I drove home, there was that lingering frustration about the about the result. But there was still the relief, really, that the the gap was as it was, and and that they were going into this game against Fulham this weekend with with seven points behind them. I think, though, it, it's now at the point. What what the, I felt the the result did more than anything at the weekend was just to jangle the nerves slightly. I think it just created a little bit of pressure around the club and and within the supporter base that didn't really feel to, seem to me to be there before the weekend. I felt there was a lot of confidence going into the Cardiff game. Um, even more so after the result between Fulham and Brentford. And it did just bust that bubble slightly. You know, it popped the balloon and suddenly you find yourself asking, well, you know, are Leeds going to struggle with finishing chances um, for an extended period or is it going to be a one-off? Are are mistakes going to creep in defensively and is it going to prove costly? I mean, it's an about turn this weekend because having wanted Brentford to, to win at Fulham, I think ideally... And, and you may disagree with me on this, but I think ideally you, you want West Brom to, to beat Brentford on Friday night. I, I think a, a situation where the top two are pulling away together and looking increasingly strong is far more preferable than a situation where four clubs start to get involved, even if it means that at the end of the weekend, Leeds are top of the table again. I think knocking out Brentford from this would, would be a very good start and then getting on top of Fulham would be um, would be task two. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I just want out of this division now. I don't mind whether it's uh, it's first or second. And we've got a very good opportunity, actually, once we get this game against Fulham out of the way, which we'll, we'll preview that in full in part two of the show. But just jumping ahead of that briefly, we've got um, a Luton. is the first midweek, uh, midweek game back at Ellen Road. So it might be a nice chance for the players, you know, to be back on familiar turf, Fulham, Luton in the space of 72 hours uh, and to get back into the swing of things. Uh, I'm surely we're just expecting a win from the Luton game. You would do, um, and if if it is a win and if it's a comfortable win, it's a it's almost a perfectly timed fixture. I mean, they are dreadful away from home, uh, just a record far beyond Wigan. <coughs> Wigan. But, well, this is it. But I think um, I think the difference with Wigan was that they probably had more about them last season than um, than Luton do this time round. I mean, their their record in in plain stats is played nineteen away from home, won three, drawn one, lost fifteen. Goals for 16, goals against 44. So you're going to get very, very long odds on on Luton doing anything at Ellen Road, which is not to say that they won't, particularly coming on the back of the Fulham game. I think if things go well on Saturday or or even if it's, you know, if it's a well-contested draw and f- Leeds feel like they play well against Fulham and, and they keep seven-point gap intact, then, you know, you move on to Luton and it suddenly becomes a, a really prime opportunity to to draw a bit more blood. So, yeah, I mean, that that has to go down on, on paper as a game you've got to win. I think if you find yourself in the playoffs come the end of July and August and that is one of the results that's gone against you, you'd be, be kicking your own teeth in. Well, let's talk in depth about Fulham now then, Phil. I mean, how pivotal is this game? Surely this is the season-defining game, this one. It's the sort of game that makes you regret the fact that there are no crowds and that nobody can actually get into them. Uh, this this was a sellout back in March. It was the, the second game that was due to be played after the, the shutdown started. The first that, that went begging was Cardiff, obviously, but then Fulham was um, a midweeker at Ellen Road and, and the tickets for that sold out so quickly. I mean, it was just a, it was a must-have, that fixture. And needless to say, because the game's been played in the same order, the, the division hasn't changed much. So it is still seven points between the clubs. We're down to, to eight games left. It does feel pivotal. I mean, it, we, we, as, as so often happens with these games, you could imagine coming out 
on the other side of this with the gap still being seven points and things not being changed too much. But but obviously, if the gap does stay the same, it very much favours Leeds. It's it's Fulham who, who have to make up the ground here. And as much as this looks like the, the ideal game for Leeds to break Fulham's back, it's equally the ideal game for Fulham to get back in the running. And um, I don't know, I, I, I just get the sense that both teams will 100% play to win on Saturday. I don't think there's anything... I mean, B- Bielsa doesn't really have have it in his mindset to compete for a draw anyway. It's not how he how he sets up. It's not what he does. But I don't see any sense in, in Fulham coming in and trying to keep it ridiculously tight. They, if they're going to finish top two, they've got to start making up ground quickly. And, and given that they lost to Brentford on Saturday, they're, they're a little lucky to have come out of the weekend, still only seven points back. I mean, we spoke before then when we were talking about Cardiff, about how they sat deeper and it wasn't particularly conducive to Leeds um, succeeding in their style of play. Will we see a more open game then from Cardiff? Because you said both teams are going to have to go for it. And they are, aren't they? Because they need to close the gap on us. Will that suit Leeds more? I think it will do. I think it always suits Leeds when teams open up against them. And and if there is a way to play against Bielsa's side, it is undoubtedly to do what Cardiff did, which is to sit deep, to invite Leeds onto you. And you need to cross your fingers and you need a certain amount of luck in as much as Leeds will get chances and they, and they will more often than not find a way through and score. And if they do score, then it completely changes the nature of the game. But we've all seen many times games in which teams have managed to keep it tight, have managed to keep it goalless. And then, as Cardiff did, have, have managed to pick Leeds off in pretty fleeting moments. I mean, it wasn't as if, particularly in the first half when, when Cardiff opened the scoring, it wasn't as if they'd had a lot of the game up until then. You know, it was a, a mistake out of nothing at a point where Mesley had, had hardly been involved. But I think the thing about Cardiff and Neil Harris is that they're quite adept at playing like that and tactically they, they're suited to it, they understand it and they're, they're comfortable with it. If you start going through Fulham's stats, they're a side who, who tend to dominate about 60% of possession in the games that they play. So they're, they're very much like Bielsa's leads in that sense. They want to be on the ball, they want to have the ball, they, they want to want to dictate. And it's been like that all the way through under Scott Parker. So it would be a break for them to shift to a style where they were essentially conceding possession to Leeds and, and allowing Leeds to play. And I think on top of that, they've got players who, who deserve to have the ball. They've got Cavalero, they've got Kearney, they've obviously got Mitrovic up front. They've got players who can do a lot of damage. And, and I just feel that in these games and at this point in the season, this is where you find out about coaches. This is where you find out about players, those who are willing to, to go for the jugular um, and to commit and, and to try and make something happen. A little bit like Chris Wilder and, and Sheffield United did at Elland Road much the same stage of, of last season and those who, who just either don't have the conviction or, or the confidence to do that I, I think Fulham will come to try and play um, it'll be difficult to play because equally Leeds will, will look to dominate the ball but it would surprise me if out of choice they, they came in and sat in deep for any any huge length of time Do you think Fulham are going to be intimidated by the crowdies on show there Ellen Road? Crowdies 15,000 of them Now I, I can't decide whether that is going to produce something that resembles a bit more of a crowd than 35,000 empty seats or actually whether it's going to have some sort of strange comedy value that that isn't going to isn't really going to feel in tune with a game between second and third at a really really crucial crucial point i mean it was strange at cardiff because you knew it was going to be empty and you knew there was going to be no atmosphere so you were ready for it and and it wasn't a surprise but there were points in the game where you had to remind yourself that you were watching something pretty pivotal and, and that this was a, a key point in a championship running with, with promotion at stake. Before the game, you, you expect the anticipation to build. And I think the I think the moment where it jumped out most to me was at half time 
when the players came back out onto the pitch and were just warming up at the side, that's normally where you'd expect a reaction from the crowd and that's normally where you'd feel a little surge of noise and, and everybody would, would zone back in. For some of us in the press box, for a couple of minutes, we didn't even realise that the players were there because there's nothing to indicate that they are apart from your eyes. You know, there's there's no sound, there's no change in tone um, to what's going on round about. And it is odd for this because it, it's not difficult to imagine what Ellen Road would have been like for a midweek night back in March when, when Leeds at that point, you know, prior to, to the, the scheduled trip to Cardiff had been on five wins in a row. It would have been Ellen Road at his height. It would have been heated. It would have been feisty. And what have we got for this one? We've got cardboard cutouts. And I know Leeds were trialling last week the option and the and the scheme of using crowd noise from within the stadium. So not just crowd noise over the top of the game via Sky or LUTV or anything else, but actually having some in the stadium. I think, from what I gather, the EFL will, will prevent them from doing that. I don't think they're going to allow any clubs to do that to save on arguments about bias or home advantage or, or unfair distractions. But it, it does make you realise that they're trying to find ways to make this as, as normal as, as possible or to feel... To feel like something close to a regular game because there were points in the Cardiff match where it did feel like a training game, not because of the intensity of it, but because of what was going on round about. Two things on that. I mean, the first of which is that it's really, it's Emperor's new clothes stuff, isn't it? This It's exposed football for what it is. Uh, when you take the fans out of the equation, it's not great. And the second thing is, uh, we will have seen by now, the picture of the crowd is being laid out at Leeds and uh, Osama Bin Laden has turned up. Yeah, who knew, eh? Um, celebrity fans and, and all that. I mean, it, it kind of goes without saying that that was the risk of crowdies, that you were never quite certain who and how was going to appear um, in this bank of, of 15,000 faces. And, and something tells me that Osama Bin Laden won't be the only controversial one or, or the only one that, that writes a few headlines. I think you're right about the football. I mean, I, I've obviously followed the Premier League since it's returned and, and equally the Championship as well. I, I think in the, the difference in the Championship is that there is a lot at stake and there is a fair amount of jeopardy in almost every position, whether it's relegation or the playoffs or automatic promotion and even the title as well. You know, there, there is nobody out in front. So so these nine games really, really matter. I think in the Premier League, you, you start to realise that there are a sizable chunk of games at that level, which don't really matter. And minus a crowd and minus any atmosphere, you find yourself asking what the point is. And it's not a particularly great product. And I think it does feed back to the fact that these games are being played for money more than anything else. That There was all the discussion about the country and, and supporters in general needing football to return. And I understood that. And I, you know, I, I did kind of sympathise with that attitude. But the bottom line was that the Premier League in particular were, were returning so that they didn't have to pay Sky a huge rebate on the, the broadcast contract. And those games do have those vibes. You know, it, there is a, an element of a box ticking exercise in, in quite a lot of, of what's going on. I think that's less true in the EFL. I think it's less true of the Championship because there is so much at stake. But it's not football as we know it. And it has to be said, it's a, it's a pretty poor imitation. It's interesting what you said about the the fact you said the Cardiff game didn't feel like it was a proper match because it's the first game that I've watched in lockdown that has actually felt like a proper game, I guess, because obviously you're not a, well, you are quite invested in Leeds. You're not actually a Leeds fan. I've watched quite a few Premier League games and I've I've just had them on in the background because even though if I started watching them, I've quite easily found myself just picking up my phone and flicking through Twitter and stuff. Whereas the Leeds game, I think as a fan, you're still getting engrossed in it. But as a general product for a wider audience, I think it does lose an awful lot of its appeal. 
you've got skin in the game, haven't you? So it matters more to you and you engage more. And, and I certainly found that when I was I was down there. I didn't think the football itself didn't feel like a, a proper contest. I, I actually thought that both Cardiff and Leeds played it at the same level of intensity that they would have done had there been a crowd round about. I think it's those moments where your mind drifts a little bit or where you step back and take a broader look of what's going on and you realise that you're, you're talking about Leeds trying to win promotion for the first time in 16 years what be, would be a monumental event for them and, and also for Bielsa and it's being done in circumstances that are so alien um, and so far removed from what Leeds and what the city and the club would be like if, if they were able to be promoted with a the crowd there and, and I know it's how it is and, and we all we all have to accept that but it does leave you sitting there thinking the sooner you can get crowds back into the stadiums the sooner football will, will return to what it should be and, and the sooner the, the quality of the product will improve as well. We talk about the differences there and we've also examined over the last week or two, will some players thrive under these circumstances? That's been one of the questions that we look at. And we look at Bamford, who we mentioned there in part one, and the fact that he might be under a little bit more pressure if the stadium was full this coming weekend, but it's not going to be. So he's going to be sort of relieved from maybe those moans and groans if he misses a chance early on. But talking of Bamford and we look at Mitrovic as well, and this is a game that is going to be, you know, mistakes at the back notwithstanding, it's going to be won and lost in attack. You would certainly think so. And whenever you think about Fulham's strengths, you you instantly gravitate towards Mitrovic because he, he is such a good striker and more than anything, he's, he's such a good finisher. I have to say, and I've, I've always felt this, Fulham under Scott Parker are not Fulham as they were under um, Slavisa Jukanovic. I was I was always a huge fan of Jukanovic. He was somebody that prior to Bielsa, I would always have been very keen to have, have had at Leeds. I, I like the way his teams played, but I liked as well the, the confidence he was able to generate in them and the, the, the total belief in the way that, that they played. If you look at, at Fulham at their best under Jukanovic, I think mentally you can see some similarities between him and Bielsa in as much as the players just seemed to totally in tune with what he was asking them to do and and also also completely optimistic and confident about the fact that it would work and they were a side who you always felt at the drop of a hat could win six seven eight games on the bounce because of the way they played and and because of the the players they have and I do find it slightly peculiar with Fulham that they've got Cavalero and they've got Kearney and they've got Knockout and they've got Mitrovic and, and others and they've got fullbacks who can who can help them to overlap but they seem to have none of the spark or the panache that Jukanovic's Fulham had and, and they rely obviously very heavily on, on Mitrovic's goals but even despite their pace you know in, in guys like Cavalero they're not a particularly counter-attacking side they do like to play on on the front foot and, and it, but it's even though Leeds like to do that Leeds have the ability to, to vary their play you know as a counter-attacking side they're very very dangerous um, and, and very skillful playing out from deep and when I you know when I hearing dispatches things about Fulham there does seem to be a fair amount of frustration with the way Parker sets his team up particularly I think the way in which he's utilised Tom Kearney who who has been one of the best players in the championship going back sort of four or five seasons now always produces at this level and when you run through this the statistics, the kind of key indicators of how the teams have performed, Leeds tend to to win out on almost every every in almost every comparison and on almost any every um, statistical calculation, whether it's shots on target per game or big chances or goals on the counter attack, any of that sort of thing. But the one area where Fulham score higher is in the shot accuracy and then the big chance conversion. And the big chance conversion is is very notably 37% compared to Leeds at 28%. And there is absolutely no doubt that a lot of the thanks for that is owed to the the big Serbian up front. So looking back to the game earlier on this season at Craven Cottage, how many big chances did Fulham have against us in that game? Because that should be quite indicative of how this game might go. Literally one. 
um, which they they took, and and I'm assuming looking at the the Optus stats here that that is um, the goal from open play as opposed to Mitrovic's penalty earlier on, which was was evidently from a from a set piece. So they they don't create a huge a huge number of Fulham. They're they're not massively creative in comparison to a lot of other teams. But the difference is that in Mitrovic, they've got somebody who takes the the chances. Um, when they come, I mean, he he has a big chance conversion rate of um, of fifty four percent, and I think the striking thing with him is that when you compare it to Bamford's, Bamford's falls down to below twenty seven percent. So in terms of the championship, there's no player in the championship who's seen more big chances than Bamford this season. He's up at thirty eight. And your top four are Bamford, Ollie Watkins, Lewis Graben, and Mitrovic. Both Watkins and, and Mitrovic take more than 50% of theirs. And, and even Graben is up at around about 44, 45%. And in Bamford, you've got that, that kind of big anomaly between the chances that have fallen to him and, and the chances that he's taken. And, and I think if we're kind of looking at Fulham Leeds, or Leeds Fulham on, on Saturday and thinking that, that it might well be decided by what happens up front, the, the stats certainly bear that out. There's, there's a notable difference and, and for the money he's paid and it is a massive salary and he's, he may well be the most expensive player in, in the championship, but for the money he's paid, Mitrovic doesn't have to deliver. I mean, all the stats that you've put on the article on your preview piece on The Athletic, the Leeds Fulham build-up bit, we do outperform them in every metric, as you said a short while ago. So what do we need to do to to stop them being effective against us? Is it a case of cutting off that supply to Mitrovic? Very much that, yeah. I mean, I was looking back at some of his goals and one that stood out in particular was his header against Swansea back in back in February, which was the last time he scored. And the process of the build-up was very simple. It was a ball from Kearney from just inside Swansea's half um, out to Kamara on, on the right wing. And, and the mistake Swansea made was to stand off Kamara and, and to let him cross into the box. And you notice straight away with Mitrovic that he's got a marker right next to him, right on top of him. But because he's so big and powerful and because he's got such a leap on him, he gets up and, and puts a header away anyway. And I think with him, if you cut the supply to him, he becomes manageable. He, he might still do things off the cuff and, and you need to watch for him shooting from the edge of the box. That'll be a, a kind of Calvin Phillips sweep up job, that one, because he, he can be pretty dead with his right foot from from different ranges but if you if you tidy that up and I think crucially if you avoid the sort of mistakes that Leeds made against Cardiff and, and were punished for then that potentially can can take him him out of the game and you know the, the other area that Bielsa highlighted on Sunday and, and I certainly felt this as well was just a lack of precision um, in the final third a lack of accuracy with passing and, and just a, a, a slight shortage of sharpness I think in the players with the, the, the attacking positions they had and what they made of them it, it was all it was all fairly blunt. It was all fairly disappointing. Aside from the, you know, the, the chance for uh, Harrison in the first half and the, the chance for Roberts in the second. And Fulham don't concede too often from open play. They're, they're fairly tight at the back. So in order to get through them, it is going to have to be good. You know, the play is going to have to be sharp. It is going to have to be precise. And and Leeds are going to have to do. They are going to have to lay it on a plate in in the way that they they like to. But I think. I think essentially the, the two aspects that Bielsa came away from Cardiff needing to look at, the, the errors that led to the goals and um, the lack of cutting edge up front, in terms of working on those two things, that that really is what needs to improve for, for Fulham coming to Ellen Road. Now, Michael, uh, if anybody has been listening to the Squareball podcast over a long period of time, will know you are desperately pessimistic when it comes to Leeds. And yet coming back into these games, you had this mad, mad wave of optimism thinking that we were going to get promoted. So where do you sit now after Cardiff and going into Fulham and, and where do you think this Fulham game goes? I mean, Sunday after the game, I was thinking we'd be lucky to make the playoffs. But 
looking at it again, it wasn't as disastrous as it first appeared, wasn't Cardiff? Looking back at the stats, that the way we appeared to actually be doing most of the right things, a couple of chances, a couple of mistakes led to their chances. And also, I did watch Fulham, and they're not all that really. I think they're, they're less than the sum of their parts at the moment of Fulham. Like when you look at some of the some of the attacking talent they've got, the likes of you know Cavalero, Knockout, Reed. Like they, I feel like they should actually be contributing a lot more in this team, but. It is so focused on Mitrovic. Like looking at the XG chances map from their game with Brentford, apart from I think there's one long shot from Joe Bryan from about 25 yards that was on there, but everything else was just Mitrovic stood on the edge of the six yard box. Whereas when you looked at Brentford's, they had six or seven players who'd had chances in the box. So it really is just all completely focused on Mitrovic. And if we can just keep that aspect of their game under control, then we might be all right. The concern is that, which I, in fairness, I'm not sure Parker's got the experience to do, is that they come and keep it tight for 70 minutes and hope that we make a mistake. Because I think that's where we'd be at our most likely to lose this game. He did change his formation slightly on Saturday. He played a 4-2-3-1. I would assume to give Fulham a little bit more defensive protection because Brentford can be very dangerous when they when they cut loose. But I think one of the risks that Parker takes and, and often to his cost is to play um, three across the middle and, and often to play three without an out-and-out out, um, defensive midfielder. So on occasions you'll have Kearney, you'll have Harry Arter, you'll, you'll have Bobby Reid and, and there's nobody like, for example, a Harrison Reid in there or a, a Calvin Phillips who can keep the door closed and, and keep it tight when they need to. I mean, in saying that, it, it, it seems a little harsh to be two down on Parker given that they, they are third and they are still in the running for the top two. But my feeling with Fulham has always been that they've got the best squad in the league and, and I've always had the underlying suspicion that a better coach or a better manager might have won them the title this season. I, I think I think they had the potential to be further up than they are and, and on a higher points tally than they, they are at the moment. But his lineup, I think, will be very interesting beforehand. If, if he does feel that too again, you'll get the sense that he's trying to be a little bit more cautious and a little bit more conservative. I think the concern for, for Fulham supporters would be if he does play a, a three in the middle like Kearney, Arthur and, and Bobby Reid, there is the risk of, of getting torn to shreds by Bielsa's players going forward. Interesting you say that about his midfield lineup because it goes beyond my tactical understanding of football. But you look at how Leeds set up against teams and we like to play between the lines. So if they don't have that defensive midfield line, it may leave it open for us because we like to play like I said, between the lines in those half spaces and all that. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things that Leeds do well under Bielsa is to occupy the lanes when they don't have the ball. So you have Phillips in that defensive role, which can, can um, contracts the space there. But also Matthias Cleek is very good at, at shifting into space and at, at leading the press further up the field and, and just making sure that teams don't have ridiculous amounts of, of room to play. And then one of the biggest criticisms I hear of, of Parker is that, that he can't get enough of a tune out of Tom Kearney, who, who should be who should be bossing it in, in this league and, and always has for a long time. I think there's a feeling that he doesn't get forward as much as he could, that he doesn't look forward or pass forward as much as he could and, and certainly isn't the player that, that he was under Jukanovic. But it goes without saying that they've players like that can be a threat regardless. And, you know, Cavalero was a, a title winner at Wolves. Knockhart has gone up with Brighton before. Kearney has been promoted with Fulham. Mitrovic, we, we know all about. They're a very, very strong side. Um, and it, it feels to me like a, a real 50-50 game at the weekend. If Leeds win this one, are we effectively promoted? Were Brentford not in the running, you would say that it would be an awful long way back 
for Fulham, particularly considering who they've they've still to play and considering the fact that the form is not pointing to them suddenly reeling off seven wins on the bounce. But the interesting thing about Brentford's win at Craven Cottage, allied with West Brom not winning and, and Leeds losing down in Cardiff, is that it has brought them back into the frame. I, I think they are probably the only other side now who can influence um, automatic promotion and, and, and could have a, a, a last-minute go at finishing second, they're going to need they're going to need a lot of things to go for them, and they're going to need a lot of very very good results. But they'll be watching the Leeds Fulham game very closely this weekend because that is the sort of thing where if they win and Leeds lose, um, but even if they win and and there's a draw at Ellen Road, it just brings them back into the mix a little bit. And you know they are a side who I think could turn over results quite steadily because they're that sort of team they play in that sort of way they, they 100% play to win so no I don't think um, I don't think basically up unless um, Brentford um, lose themselves in, in which case suddenly it becomes you know it, it becomes a very sizable gap and a difficult one to, to overturn but we get into trouble when we say things like that so uh, so let's not tempt fate What sort of a result is a good result on, on Friday then between West Brom and Brentford? Personally I think you're looking for a West Brom win I think you're looking for a West Brom win to little by little take Brentford out of out of the equation. I think the fewer teams involved, the better. If West Brom do that, Leeds do do their job Saturday. Um, all of a sudden, you've got a very strong looking top two, and and I don't hear many people chuntering on about winning the title or stressing out about whether or not Leeds will beat West Brom to first place. I think everybody is just fixed on automatic promotion, and I I think there would be some quiet satisfaction if if West Brom were able to to stick a pin in Brentford. You might currently look like you've been living in the woods for a few months, but now we're gradually being let outside again. It's time to fix up, look sharp. Harry sponsors the Phil Hay Show, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two blokes who were sick of paying over the odds for razor blades. And you know how it's been. As the number of blades has increased, the price has skyrocketed. But the good news is Harry's blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. You can get the Harry's trial set for just $3.95 to get everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. In there, the weighted ergonomic handle, a precision-engineered five-blade cartridge, rich lathering shave gel, makes you smell lovely, uh, travel blade cover, and Phil, I presume you've been back on the uh, the Harry's now. You are a subscriber yourself. You must have had a shave and tidied yourself up now for the BL suppressors because it must feel like going to a job interview that he'd judge you if you didn't look tidy. Yeah, he probably would. I, I, I felt a bit bad that I had to watch it from my bed last week because I got relegated upstairs by the kids and um, and my wife. But um, no, I've spent most of the lockdown looking like I'd been living in the woods. So it was lovely to finally get a nice clean shave and, and feel human again. Get your trial set, that handle, five blade cartridge, shave gel, travel blade cover at harrys.com forward slash philhay right now. That's harrys.com forward slash philhay. Part three now and the weekly podcast poll and the results this week in third place, distant third place, Benito Carboni. Uh, Gary Monk came in second with about a fifth of the vote, but streaking off in front, Samuel Saez won it this week, the Twitter poll that you put out a couple of days ago, Phil. So do have a look for Phil's Twitter feed for the weekly poll when we give you the chance to dictate what we talk about in this bit. Samu Saez then, I mean, in many ways, a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma, really talented player, but he never really looked happy at Ellen Road and was sort of quietly hurried out of the door under something of a cloud in the end. So let's have a look at the Saez story. 
because none of us had really heard of him when he signed. So let's go back to that moment. Can I just jump in on Carboni first and say that I will tell this story at some point, but I think it's the only time at Leeds I've ever heard Chilino or any owner's secretary phone someone and tell them to get out of the flat and to return the, the company car and um, company credit card and then be asked, um, well, what am I supposed to do? And, and say, well, that's not really our problem. Just um, just get on with it. But there was none of the, none of that with, with Saiz. I mean, Saiz is probably as, as naturally gifted a footballer as, as has come through the door at Leeds in in several several years, and and he was a really really big transfer target in 2017. That was Radrazani's first window, and it was a very hectic window. There, there were a lot of comings and goings. There was a change of manager, obviously Thomas Christensen for for Gary Monk. But the the investment in players, while not huge in terms of individual fees spent, it was very very widespread, and and the, there was some recruitment domestically, but there was a lot from abroad as well. And the two that they they had to work. Work hardest on well, Alioski um, from from Switzerland, and also Saez from Huesca in Spain. Now they've been on to Saez from an early point in in the window. Victor Orta knew of him, liked a lot about him, thought that he'd fit as a as an out and out number ten. But it was a complicated one to do. They brought Saez over and let him have a look around. Took him up to Thorpe Arch many many weeks before he he actually signed. But there was always this lingering doubt about whether he really wanted to come. Um, lingering doubt about whether or not his partner was happy to move away from Spain and and really fancied. The move to England, but it was one of those that over time you saw how much Leeds were were digging their heels in, how how much they were refusing to to let it go, and and you started to get the sense that 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 one would happen, and and in the end, um, it was done for about three and a half million pounds, and and as I recall, with the possible exception, I guess, of Pierre Michel Lasaga, who came from Hamburg right at the very end of the window, that was probably the the signing that that stood out in that particular market. Yeah, I remember being quite excited, I think, by his his signing. Hadn't heard much, if anything, about him, but the fee suggested that he had a little bit of something about him. And when you saw him play and his stature and his demeanour, you kind of saw what they were angling at in terms of that advanced midfield playmaker. I think those early days of Saez, we were probably as guilty as anyone of being a little bit smug about signing him because he looked... He looks so good. Like I think I'm pretty sure I described him as the best player we'd had since being in the Premier League. He was of that level of talent. But then, like a lot of these players, you mentioned Lasaga there, he's another one that you kind of, on his debut, you watched him play and you thought, God, have we managed to get this guy even for not all that much money when there were, when there's, in the Championship, there's some quite big sort of 10, 12 million pound fees thrown around sometimes. There was a slight smugness that we managed to get these these players for not very much and they were absolutely brilliant. But then, as is often the case with these people, the longer time goes on, the more you think, ah, that's why. Yeah, I think that's what you came to realise with Saez. There was a reason why somebody with with his attributes and and at his best, somebody who who looked like he should be playing in a higher division wasn't and and hadn't been in in Spain either. I mean, at, at the outset, there was a lot to admire about him. I loved his his low centre of gravity. I, I loved his swagger. Um, he had great vision and and obviously his debut reeled off that hat trick against Port Vale and and it was only Port Vale, but the finishes were really tidy and all in all, he just looked like a a very very rounded and and good quality. Number ten, and I mean the, f- the first half of his first season at Leeds, he he was on it for a lot of it. You know, it, it, particularly in that period where Leeds were good under Christensen and and they moved to the top of the league and and they were winning games and and everything else. It was easy to see how how he fitted into the team. It was easy to understand why he was making a difference. But I guess in the end, it, it came down to that that old point that people always make and the question people always ask about incoming signings is 
how durable are they and how long can they do it for? Are they able to do it right the way through the season or, or are you getting flash-in-the-pan performances from them? And there were points at which it looked like it was very easy for size, like it was all coming very naturally and, and like he'd adapted to the, the championship overnight. But I do remember his goals drying up significantly and, and really drying up in a, in a flash. And then, of course, we moved on to Newport and, and the spitting incident, which which I still kind of feel was was the beginning of the end for him at Leeds. Was he ever really happy? He always struck me as an unhappy player. He, he never quite fully uh, adjusted to the game. Like, you know, there's quite a lot of niggling at referees and uh, uh, just looking at quite sour-faced when he was playing. I don't know if that was just um, me looking back in hindsight, whether that was really the case at the time. I'm not sure that he was, which is not to say that he was desperately unhappy um, for a lot of it either. But as I say, but when... Um, when Leeds were getting involved in the transfer and discussing him coming over, it was mentioned to me a, t- a few times that, that the club weren't sure whether or not, um, from a personal point of view, the move would be right for him, whether whether he really wanted to, to leave Spain. I got the sense that he adapted to the, the football itself. OK, I didn't think there was a, a great problem there. But he was a bit of a loner. He, he didn't speak a, a huge amount of, of English. And I think what happened down at Newport was more than just the the kind of little gradual build up over time that makes somebody who who is unhappy feel as if they they need to go i think he found the the coverage of that extremely difficult to take i think he i think he very much regretted what he'd done and realized straight away that he was going to be the subject of a of a lot of criticism afterwards um and it was I mean, all round, that was a disaster of a day down in Wales, but it was just such a bizarre flashpoint at the end of that that match. I don't think anybody quite quite believed that it had happened. I don't think anybody really understood why on earth he'd done it. You know, clubs tend to be pretty protective of players. They tend to be quite defensive, and they don't they don't usually rush to hold their hands up and um, without taking a good look at things. But it, it took, I think, it was about ten o'clock the following morning when when we'd all got home and got back into the office the, the next day, the, the Monday, that Leeds phoned to say, "Oh, there'll be a statement coming um, with him holding his hands up to this, admitting that he did it, apologising and and taking a." a six game ban and he deserved it you know it, it was 100% what had to happen and and no excuses uh, but it it was it was a definite setback and and I don't think with the exception of a little burst under the, at the start of Bielsa's first season I don't think we we ever quite saw size at his best after that do you think we could have kept him happy? I'm just thinking of, like, for example, when you, I've read Neil Warnock's autobiography talking about the way he handled Adel Tarapt in the QPR's promotion season where he basically recognised he was the most talented player in the squad and essentially let him do whatever he wanted. Do you think that would have been an approach that might have worked with Saez or was it was it never going to be an option for us? It was never going to be an option under Bielsa because Bielsa just doesn't doesn't think like that. I mean, it's the the all pigs are equal thing, really. You know, ev- everybody is is on the same level, and and people don't get preferential treatment. I think you know, to an extent, with somebody like Hernandez, there needs to be a bit more, and there is a bit more thought given to how you manage his his body, but. What Bielsa doesn't really give much thought to is how you manage egos. You know, he doesn't feel like it. There should be any compromise to to be made. And you know, to to a large extent, I agree. And and I think when you look at the way Leeds play now, you can understand how it can work without having to have a bit of a, a wild card or or a playmaker in the side. As much as anything, it it, it felt like a bit of a personality thing with with size. It it. it he had great things about him as as a footballer, but it, when you looked at his career in Spain, it, it never quite gone as it as it should have done. And, and since he's gone back to Spain, first to Getafe and then to to Girona permanently last summer, it hasn't been brilliant for him either. He's done okay, but you know he's he's not sparkling and and he's not standing out. And I mean, I I remember the the summer when Bielsa came in 
Um, we hadn't seen too much of, of size prior to that point. He served his six-game ban. He hadn't been kept particularly fit during that period. And, and by the time he was available, Christensen had gone, Heckenbottom had come in. And, you know, there was this kind of desperate hope and reliance on on size and, and this this hope that somehow him coming back in would elevate Leeds from 13th, 14th up to the, the top six, which never happened in part because size wasn't wasn't up to it. But we went up to Thorpe Arch for the, the very early, uh, I think the first day of training under Bielsa, first or second day, certainly the, the initial week when he came in. And his fitness coach, Benoit Delaval, the, the Frenchman who'd been with him at Leo, was putting the players through running sessions around the, the big pitches. And, and they were hard, you know, they were long, they were tough, but all of the squad were able to knit together and to run, you know, to do that run as one big group with the exception of Saez who fell further back and further back and eventually Cooper dropped out of the pack to run with Saez just to help him finish and, and to get over the line and his fitness was was never really there at, at that point but you'll remember like I do that the game away at Derby the, the first game against Frank Lampard leads 1-4-1 down at, at Pride Park and Saez was almost unplayable in the first half he, he was he was breaking into those pockets of space and he was taking advantage of the fact that Derby seemed to want to try and go punch for punch with Leeds and, and the way Bielsa was playing. And he did look impossible to contain. And, and you did just feel if you could bottle that and if you could get that out of size, not 46 games a season, but 35 times, something like that, if he could be that consistent, he'd have been a massively valuable asset and he'd have been a player who, who I think would have elevated himself above championship level but you didn't get it in the end and and what always stands out to me with size is the fact that in the end he was dropped by Bielsa um, for reasons of form and Bielsa very rarely does that very rarely changes his team on the basis of form particularly when the results are decent which they absolutely were you know it just isn't isn't the way he does things and and when um when size came back into the the team and um you know when when he finally got a run again um just just before Christmas I, I dug out Bielsa's quote and he said playing well for him is a step forward but what he needs to do now is to find his capacity to make a a difference and I think if you read between the lines what that tells you is that whether or not Bielsa admired his ability and admired admired, his talent and and what he could do the all-round performance wasn't there and and what he was getting from Saez as a complete package just wasn't enough for him. At that point, Saez had already started making moves to get out in the summer, hadn't he? So he was already playing from a position of not being 100% committed. But I do remember that Derby game and he was brilliant. Yeah, he was. And, you know, that was, it was kind of indicative of the way Leeds had started to play under Bielsa. And and you could see a lot of the work that that had gone into them over the summer. And and it has to be said in Saez's defence, he did get an awful lot more fit um, during that pre-season. He worked hard and, and he did start to get up to the level where Leeds wanted him to be and Bielsa in particular wanted him to be. But I think the fact that come October and it was the, the game at home tips which that, that Leeds won 2-0, size was substituted before an hour. It was the fact that for a team who were doing well and were up near the top of the league and, and very much in contention, albeit quite an, an early stage, Bielsa felt he felt minded and he felt he felt it necessary to pull size out of the team. And when I go back through the past two seasons and think about the changes that have been made on a tactical basis, you know, on, on a basis of a player's form or, or lack of it. There was Peacock Farrell who obviously lost his place when Casilla came in. There was size in that season. Other than that, it hasn't happened very often. It doesn't happen often that, that Bielsa looks at a player and says, I'm not having you at the moment. I don't, you know, you, you're not doing it. I don't feel like you're, you're right for the team. But clearly with size, things things weren't quite right. And, and there was something about his performances that was bothering Bielsa. I mean, despite all that, and despite his limitations and maybe 
elements of his commitment and his character that maybe are not suited to Bielsa's style of football or maybe even professional football. Do we still miss him, Michael? I think we definitely do to an extent. And at the time he'd come in, he was he was better than anything we'd seen for quite a long time. And I think, I suppose, to liken him to an old Leeds player, not one I saw play, but someone like John Sheridan, who I think came, was playing in a, a team that was otherwise been in the doldrums. And then having that creative spark in there just give, gave you something to actually look forward to. I think the thing with him leaving as well was that, oddly, there was not a huge amount of anger towards him, despite the fact he was more or less just saying, I don't fancy this and bailing out on a what should have been a glorious season for us. Maybe I wasn't as, as harsh as some people, but I just sort of thought that's a shame rather than I can't believe he's doing this to us, which maybe is, I, I guess, a sympathy with the fact that he just kind of is the way he is and you maybe can't change that about a person. I think it's slightly different and it probably helps if you've you've come in from abroad. It, you, it wasn't him saying, look, I want to leave and, and I want to go join Chelsea or a team further down the, the bottom of the Premier League. He was genuinely saying to the club, I want to go home. You know, I, I want to go back to Spain. We're not particularly happy here. And in a lot of ways, it, it happened overnight. Players at the club had been aware of his attitude kind of deteriorating and Brady was somebody who was very close to him and, and I was told at the time did at one stage have words with size to say, look, you can't be like this around the training ground. You've got to be a bit more upbeat. You've got to be a bit more engaged and you've got to look like you, you want it, particularly with Bielsa. But essentially from the, the point at which size and his, his agent first made contact with the club to say, he wants to go. He was gone. I mean, they, they spoke to Bielsa and they, and they told him this and, and Bielsa rated him. He, he liked him as a player despite, you know, misgivings about certain aspects of what he what he did. But Bielsa instantly said, well, if he if he feels that he wants to go, then then he goes. And, you know, Bielsa did say at the press conference at Bolton after this all, the news all broke, he did say, look, it, it was the club's decision. But Bielsa was 100% involved in it. You know, he was he, he was very much aware of, of what was going on. And I think his attitude was just, if, if I've got a player here who doesn't want to be here and a player here who's potentially going to gonna cause problems, then it's not a case of I, I, I want to find a way to get him out of the club. It's a case of I want him gone now. You know, I, I, I want him to, to leave. And, you know, the deal with Girona was done um, well in advance of, of the January window. There were still games left in December that even if, um, uh, sorry, not Girona, um, Getafe, even if Saiz was going to Getafe in, in January, which he did, there were games left in which he could have played him, particularly over Christmas. But because he'd made it so clear that he wanted to leave, it, it just wasn't a consideration. It was it was the end of the line. And all of it was wrapped up really, really quickly. And, you know, by, by the time we got to the, the game at Bolton later in the week, he, he was an ex-Leeds player, essentially. It's very easy, I think, sometimes to view these players in isolation, but you have to remember there is a, a social bubble around them, and particularly when they're not uh, speaking their native tongue, they're not in their you know home country. Uh, it can be difficult, and I know his partner Elena Miller, who she's sort of a uh, maybe a Big Brother level celebrity, isn't she in, in Spain? She was potentially an influence in his decision to go because she was pregnant at the time and confirmed via Instagram at the time that homesickness was a factor in their leaving. Yeah, she did. Although she was, she was also at pains to say that it wasn't specifically the pregnancy or the the previous miscarriage that that was an issue. I think they just felt like they hadn't settled and they felt like they they needed to to go back. And it has to be said. I mean, Leeds were Leeds were very good with him. They didn't obstruct him leaving. They didn't obstruct the deal with 
Getafe at all. The deal that was done, it, it wasn't, there was an option for Getafe to take him permanently at the end of the, the season, but it wasn't an obligation. So it wasn't even as if they, they were sending, sending him off, but were guaranteed cash at the end of it. Getafe had agreed that if they, if they wanted to take him, they would pay six million pounds from or six million euros. I forget which exactly, but ultimately they didn't bother. Um, he didn't play much for them. They weren't interested in, and by the end of that season, they decided to look elsewhere. So th- it was that odd scenario where a player who, some people, some supporters would probably have thought of as one of Leeds' most talented was being allowed to go on loan back to Spain with kind of no financial inducement for Leeds and, and no promise of, of anything specifically at the end of it. So it was a, a very, very weird scenario. But I think, again, gives you a, a great insight into the way that, that Bielsa looks at players. It's it's either the collective or nothing with him. And, and neither he nor anybody else at Leeds was, was about to indulge size um, in that scenario. Interesting that we've never really signed a direct replacement, as we kind of uh, mentioned a little a little while ago. There makes you wonder if if that sort of player is exactly what he wants. But then it's also interesting to see, and we spoke about this on the Squareball podcast earlier in the week. The link with um, Emmy Buendia at Norwich, who is a player who I saw him a video highlights reel and thought he's the closest I've seen to a Saiz type player, but clearly the next level up. Very good player, um, and oddly somebody who was at Cultural Leonese prior to going to Norwich. That was Leeds supposed kind of feeder club or, or the, the club in Spain that they had that odd and slightly inexplicable partnership for uh, with for, for a short period of time. And, and even though Buendia was there, he wasn't somebody that, that Leeds went for. My understanding of that is that Leeds have asked about him, but the way it was put to me was that it was a, a small ask, which is to say that he's somebody they're, they're aware of, but I don't know at this stage whether he's somebody they would they would definitely want to go for. But needless to say, he's, he, he is gifted he, he, and, and you're right he, he would kind of fit in that mould I find it quite telling that at no stage since size left and we've had three transfer windows since then including one through the summer where it's much easier to do business and than it is in, in the winter that at no stage have Leeds ever really targeted an out and out number 10 to replace him they did bring in Izzy Brown but you got the feeling that Bielsa was never quite convinced by that one never quite sure about it it felt more like a club deal than a than a Bielsa deal and while you've had windows where for example he's wanted Augustine to come in to replace Inketia and you know Casilla to come in to replace Peacock Farrell very sort of specific targets in specific positions he seems to me to be much happier with the the kind of double eight in the middle as opposed to an eight like Matthias Cleek and a, a ten like like size um, and even Hernandez you know you, you get the sense that if Forshaw was fit, Forshaw would play with Cleek in the middle and Hernandez would probably tussle with um, with Costa for that area wide on the right. And it does sometimes make me make me wonder whether, you know, the the way in which size was dropped back in back in twenty eighteen, early early on in, in Bielsa's time as as head coach, was that because ultimately the system with size in it didn't work for him? Was it ultimately because there wasn't enough diligence on size's part? You, you didn't get the the kind of security and the solidity that you get with two eights, like for example, Cleek and and Forshaw. was size ever really the sort of player that that Bielsa wanted to go for? And and on the basis that they've never really gone for a light for light replacement, you would you would guess not. One to watch then, please, Phil, as we face Fulham this coming weekend at Ellen Road, and um, I guess we're going to be picking a one to watch for the Luton game as well, because we've got that one before we record next. It's got to be Mitrovic, hasn't it? It's got to be Mitrovic on Saturday. I, I feel that if um, if Mitrovic is kept quiet, then I, I think Leeds win that game. It just feels to me to, to go over the way that Fulham play and to, to study closely what Parker does. It, it's so heavily reliant on 
on him up front. And, you know, errors, errors like Leeds made at Cardiff on Sunday are, are going to be punished. And I think that will probably be the first protocol for them. Bielsa will want them to control the game. He'll, he'll want them to dictate possession. He'll want them to dominate like they always do. But if, if they make errors, Mitrovic will, will be there to pounce. And, and that, for me, feels like the like the key area. Big, big battle between him and Ben White. Best For my money, best striker in the, in the division and, and best centre-back too. And Lewin, you've got to fancy Nathan Jones, don't you, really? Yes. I mean, I assume Stoke have removed that um, that photograph from just outside the press area of, of him celebrating the, the win over Leeds, which wasn't quite his only win, but was just about his only win. Um, and absolutely sods law that, that one of the only sides to lose to them last season was indeed the, the Mighty Whites. But yeah, I mean, it, it has to be said with Jones that in his, his first stint at, at Luton, they were excellent. They seemed to know exactly what they were about and, and they were very, very good at, at getting results. It, it's been a definite battle for them this season, but I think it was always always likely to be. And I think with, with home advantage, um, such as it is minus a crowd, that, that strikes me as a as a really, really tough game for Luton. But yeah, very interested to see to see what he does because he's one of quite a, a select few managers who've actually got the better of Bielsa. And will we be sitting here this time next week, Michael, with six points in the bank? God, I hope so. If only for... So I can sleep again. I think, in fairness, not losing to Fulham is is the key thing. I think if if we lose that one, the panic will properly kick in. I think a draw is just about okay. Well, fingers crossed there is six points as we march on towards the conclusion of the season. Make sure you don't miss out on Phil's top draw coverage of Leeds on The Athletic, plus everything else in the Premier League and the football and sporting world. 40% off a subscription for a limited time, which is less than three quid a month. Go to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to sign up now we'll speak to you next week bye-bye the phil hay show